the cycling podcast powered by super sapiens energy management for committed athletes and coaches Hello, my name's Richard Moore. I'm with Lionel Burney. Hello, Richard. Hello, Lionel. Hello, Daniel Freib. Hello, chaps. Well, chaps, I'm still in Belgium. I was here for opening weekend. Um, and in this week's episode, we're going to be talking a lot about Omloop Het Newsblad and Kurna Brussels Kurna. I'm hanging around here for Lissamine tomorrow. We'll maybe feature that in next week's episode. It will also feature in the cycling podcast Femina coming uh, later this week um, but as I said we're going to feature uh, those two uh, first cobbled classics of the year um, in this episode some other stuff as well to get through we're going to hear from people like Nathan Van Hoydonk, uh, Eve Lampert um, maybe hear a bit from Greg Van Avermaet, Taco van der Horn one of the men of Kurna Brussels Kurna yesterday um, but you've got a news roundup for us as well please Lionel could you uh, give us that Nathan Nathan Van Honeydunk, as a rival podcaster, vlogger, calls him, um, quite charmingly. I won't say who it is, but a Honeydunk. When I, when I hear Honeydunk, I think of a particularly kind of delicious three-pointer to win a basketball match. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, as you say, Rich, we're going to focus on opening weekend. There was a point with about 60 kilometres to go in Sunday's race when I thought we were watching a new... Belgian stage race, the two days of Tish Benut, because he was active, instrumental really, on Saturday in Omloop Het Newsblad, where we saw a Wout van Aert Jumbo Visma masterclass. Benut laid the groundwork for an attack by the Belgian champion just as they went into the final climb, the Bosberg. And then Van Aert did something you must have admired, Richard, a 13 kilometer individual time trial on a road bike. You must have enjoyed the aesthetics of that as mm. he soloed to win Het Newsblad for the first time. The Paris-Roubaix champion and European champion Sonny Colbrelli won the sprint for second ahead of Greg Van Avermaet, who's been on the podium five times on loop. He's won it, of course, twice. And it was a real sort of evergreen moment, wasn't it, for Van Avermaet? Uh, but an ominous performance in his first race of the season for Van Art, and I suppose if there's one crumb of comfort for his classics rivals, it's that no one has ever won Omloop and the Tour of Flanders in the same season. I don't know, that's a sort of pretty small crumb of comfort, isn't it? On Saturday, Quickstep missed out, as they often do in Het Newsblad. Their best rider was Florian Seneschal in ninth place, but they're all smiles on Sunday in Kerner because Fabio Jakobsen beat Caleb Ewan in what we thought... Uh, was the predictable sprint finish, but it didn't come about in predictable fashion, did it? Because they caught the three riders who'd been away uh, with about 50 metres to go. Christophe Laporte almost made it a Jumbo-Visma double, uh, but he, Taco van der Horn and Jonathan Narvaez were caught within touching distance of the line, and it was Jakobsen who got the win. Van der Horn, a contender, putting in a, a strong bid for the Castellet prize, I thought, but we'll maybe get onto that later. Well, there were perhaps signs that the you world really ranking. Cassolet and Taco in the same <laughs> That's fusion cuisine at its worst, I think. Oh, wow. I actually like the sound of that. It'd be that, good. That's got potential, I think. Yeah, the yeah. crunch of the taco, the, the soft beans and sausage. Anyway, and there were perhaps signs that the world. Uh, ranking situation, this, this promotion relegation battle, uh, the first significant. 
um, incidents, I thought, of a team chasing points rather than a win because Arkea Samsic had Ugo Ofstetter in third, Dan McClay in fourth and Amori Capio in seventh. Three riders sprinting and all making it into the top seven. I thought that was quite interesting. Other notes, an unfortunate one for Fernando Gaviria who crashed in Omloop on Saturday and has fractured his collarbone. Meanwhile, the women's races, which will be discussed in a lot more detail, Richard, by you, Rose and Orla in the Cycling Podcast Feminine. Annemiek van Vluten was too strong for Demi Vollering at the finish of Het Newsblad. Um, remember, she crashed at Paris-Roubaix in October and fractured some bones. And I didn't mention that when she won Valenciana last week, but uh, she's obviously back to her best. And on Sunday, Marta Bastianelli won the Omloop van Het Hageland. Uh, so, as I say, more of that in Feminine coming out later this week. Lots of other racing going on. As expected, Tadej Pogacar clinched the UAE Tour on the final day. He also won the final stage to Jabel Hafit, uh, beating Adam Yates. Those two have really dominated that climb since 2020. Earlier in the race, there was Jasper Philipson's second sprint win and a stage win for 19-year-old Mateusz Vacek of the Czech Republic. Now, we're going to talk a lot more about this in the final part because Vacek rides for the Gazprom team and he was one of three Gazprom riders in that six-man break. Uh, They held off the peloton to win the stage. And of course, Gazprom, as I mentioned in last week's episode, is a Russian-owned, Russian-state-owned energy company. And all this was happening after the full-scale invasion of Ukraine by Russia. And I suppose it was significant that on the same day, a Ukrainian rider, Anatoly Budyak, won a stage of the Rwanda tour and dedicated that victory to his compatriots and appealed for the hostilities to cease. The overall in Rwanda was won by Natnael Tesfastion of Eritrea, who also rides for Gianni Savio's drone hopper team. Uh, Meanwhile, in Spain, the new stage race in Galicia, northern Spain, the Gran Camino, was taken by Alejandro Valverde. He toppled Mike Woods in the final time trial. Woods had won the really steep uphill finish on Friday. Valverde won the stage on Saturday. And the race was bookended by stage wins for EF Education, Easy Post riders, Magnus Court on the first day, and Mark Padun on the final day in the time trial, who, like Budyak, is a Ukrainian. So some significance to that victory as well. And Lionel, whose parents um, had already fled, left Ukraine in the first, well, as a result of the first sort of conflict or when the, the conflict in Ukraine started in 2014, because he is from the Donbass or he's from Donetsk, I think. And his parents have now emigrated to, or I don't know whether they've been granted asylum, but they live in Chicago, I think. Seattle, I think it is, actually. Is it Seattle? Yes, I think so, yeah. And finally, for the racing, because there was two cracking races in the south of France and another really impressive solo win for Brandon McNulty of UAE Team Emirates. He won the Four Nordesh Classic ahead of Mary Van Sevenant and Sepp Kuss. And on Sunday, victory for Jonas Vingegaard of Jumbo Visma at the Drome Classic. And in these two races, Primoz Roglic made his first appearances of the season, finishing 26th on Saturday and 28th on Sunday. The UCI Esports World Championships were held in not New York City. Jay Vine beat Freddie Ovette and defending champion Jason Osborne was third. Vine recently rode the Tour of the Algarve for Alpacin Phoenix and of course he got his contract with Alpacin Phoenix via the Zwift Academy. The women's race was won by Dutch rider Lois Adegist 
And away from the racing, Jason Kenny has retired, Britain's most successful Olympian with seven gold medals in track sprinting between 2008 and 2021. And finally, with some more track news uh, from British Cycling Headquarters, Carly McCulloch, the Australian four-time women's team sprint world champion, has been appointed sprint coach, replacing Jan van Eyden, who left in November after almost 15 years. And just to answer a listener's question, finally, uh, Rob Butchart asked, where is James Knox? Because the British rider has yet to make an appearance for Quick Step this season, so I asked the team, and apparently he's been suffering from a minor knee problem and they're not rushing him back. Uh, as it stands, he may ride Copy Ibartoli, the stage race, next month, but uh, even that is up in the air at the moment, so um, not entirely sure when we'll see James Knox back in action. Any other news? Just one thing, while I remember chaps, uh, I don't know if this was widely covered at the weekend, but we saw Wout van Aert wearing a Red Bull helmet. Was there any discussion about this, Rich? Well, yeah, it's funny. I, I asked a, a colleague about that, and he was under the impression he'd been wearing it for a while, but I'm pretty sure that was the first time he's worn it in a road race. Yes, and we've seen this already with um, Tony Paltzer at Bora Hansgrohe. Tony Paltzer was the schemo athlete or ski mountaineer and fell runner or, or sky runner um, who was previously sponsored by Red Bull prior to becoming a professional cyclist last year. And he's allowed to wear the Red Bull helmet for Bora Hansgrohe because Red Bull became a partner of Bora Hansgrohe at the team. And the same applies to Jumbo Visma. That's the only... Um, the only reason for which Wout van Aert is, is allowed to wear that helmet. And Red Bull were already quite involved with Jumbo Visma's ski, um, speed skating team um, to continue the theme. Last week we spent a lot of time speaking about speed skating, didn't we? And um, yeah, so I know Tom Pitcock also has an agreement with Red Bull, but absent a, a Red Bull agreement with Ineos, then I don't believe that... Pidcock will be allowed to wear a Red Bull helmet in races. And just finally, following up uh, our discussion last week on uh, cycling cyclists appearing on reality TV shows, Laura Messier got in touch to say Pedro Delgado was on Celebrity MasterChef in Spain in 2020, I think. And Simon Bloomfield uh, gets in touch to tell us that Baden Cook was on uh, an Australian TV programme, Brains vs. Brawn. Uh, recently, so Baden Cook and Pedro Delgado added to the list. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Thank you very much indeed to our title sponsor, Super Sapiens. We're very grateful to them for their support. And last year, we ran some competitions for our listeners to win three months' worth of Super Sapiens sensors to allow them to monitor their blood glucose levels, help them with their training or... Um, their, whatever goals they were aiming for. One of our uh, competition winners was Konstantin von Rundstedt, a German listener who lives in Dusseldorf and in fact was inspired to take up cycling by the 2017 Tour de France Grand Depart in Dusseldorf. Um, he was one of our winners. He took three months worth of Super Sapiens sensors and gave them a go. Um, let's hear how he got on. When I started 
cycling 2017. I was weighing in just under 100 kilograms. Um, felt okay and I'd done sports in the past. Um, but as I have a desk job, I needed to get exercise. And I felt that after two years of exercising on a sort of um, just leisure basis, that um, I was constantly feeling tired. And I had sort of bloated stomach and I figured I should get an analysis check on my vitals, um, blood check and everything. So when I did that, I was told that I was not really diagnosed as um, sick, but I was suffering from something like hyperinsulinemia, meaning that my pancreas would be just too much creative, producing way too much ins insulin. And I, I, I was told that this is sort of a finite process. And at some point, um, your pancreas cannot create any more insulin because then it's just empty, like an empty revol revolver. Yeah, you're out of ammo. And in order to avoid that, I would have to definitely reduce and change my uh, way of uh, ways of nutrition. When I heard about the system um, that was capable of tracking my glucose levels, I thought maybe that could be a solution to get a better understanding of in real time what, what's happening in my body. In the past weeks, I have been mostly training indoors because we had awful weather here. And um, after 30 minutes, I would, I would in fact eat gel. And I could watch in real time pretty much yeah, what it would do to my glucose level. I could feel, maybe that's also psychology there um, working, but uh, I could feel that I was getting more energy to finish my exercise, my, my workout. And I've tried this then on the road. Uh, I'm obviously not constantly looking at the phone, but if I, I can see when I'm feeling weak, you know, I can look at it and I can now say, I guess I'll be here or there uh, on, a, on, you know, on my scale. So I am starting to develop a, a feeling uh, for what, uh, an, or an understanding of what I'm feeling. Maybe that's a proper way to say it. But the more you do it, um, obviously, uh, the more you understand it. And at some point, I guess I'll be then sort of well-equipped and well under, have a good understanding of what I can do and then come back to it, you know, not every week, um, but every month or so, every second month to see uh, where, it's, where, where, where I'm headed, if I'm on a good path or bad or even worse path. Morning, Richard. It sounds very noisy. Where are you? I'm in the, the Kupka, uh, Lionel. Um, points for pronunciation, please. Uh, I'm in the track centre. We were last here a few months ago, weren't we, for the Ghent Six. Um, and it's a similar scene here, big crowds, as you can probably hear, for the team's presentation uh, ahead of Het Newsblad. got EF Education Easy Post on stage at the moment. Um, so far, I have to say, the biggest cheer of the morning has been for Bart Swings, the Belgian speed skater who's, uh, who won a, their first gold medal in, I think, 74 years at the Winter Olympics, and he appeared on stage, so he got a, a big cheer. But um, it's uh, this wasn't held in public last year, this presentation, and it's back this year. So it's nice to be here in amongst the throng. How do you think he's going to get on in the cycling? Is he racing today or is he just watching? Well, well, well it is a bit slippy underfoot, I have to say. Uh, <laughs> took me by surprise, but uh, as, I, as I walked up here, uh, it was pretty icy. I, I, I slipped myself. Um, sound like I'm talking about horse racing here, slippery underfoot. 
I expect Wout van Aert to win by a couple of furlongs, though, I think, at the end of the, <laughs> at the, end of the race. Um, one little change this year to the presentation is it's just the men's teams. The, what they've done in, in previous years has, has been to present the men's and women's teams together. Um, that's not the case this year. The women's teams will be presented an hour later uh, because their race is starting a bit later. So that, that's one little change. It's, it's been fairly subdued. Uh, Peter Sagan got a big, a big cheer and uh, Lawson Craddock for, uh, for, for praising Flanders and its beer. Um, but I expect when Quickstep appear as the final team, the, uh, the noise will go up a bit. Well, yeah, I guess so. I mean, Ilio Kaiser, that's his home venue, really, isn't it? And this is his last Het Newsblad because he's retiring at the end of the season. So I imagine he'll get a really big reception, as will uh, Yves Lampart. And I suppose the most eagerly anticipated thing about today is the first race on the road for Wout van Aert. Are, we, are you expecting him to do much? What's the kind of rumble? Is he going to be right up there today? Or is this just the beginning of a journey towards the bigger classics? I think it's probably the beginning of a journey towards the biggest classics. I was actually staying in his hotel last night, and I didn't see him. Um, he's got a pretty strong team here as well. Teish Benut uh, riding for Jumbo Visma now, of course. Missing one or two of the riders who might support him in some of the other cobbled classics. But I think Van Aert is coming here off the back of a big altitude camp. We heard from Primoz Roglic in last week's episode, didn't we? And... I think they were they were together in Tenerife. So, how he adapts from that to this, uh, well, we'll wait and see. Um, but he's surely one of the favourites. Are you what, looking forward to to taking it all in on television, Lionel? I am. Yeah, I do get a little pang when Het Newsblad is on because it's one that is so easy to hop across the channel and go and see. And I made it a sort of semi-regular. But since you've moved to northern France, you've you've taken it on as one of your home races, really. So I will satisfy myself with sitting down and watching it from, uh, well, as much of it as is broadcast, I will watch. I'm on a roll at the moment. After the quadruple bill last Sunday, this feels like a you know, very manageable portion of cycling this afternoon. Absolutely. I mean, nothing stopped you coming over as well, Lionel, but uh, maybe next year we, we can do that. It, it is a cracking weekend, this, with... Uh, Het Newsblad today and Kerner Brussels Kerner tomorrow. Um, a really enjoyable double bill and uh, you know the race is just subtly different. But this this is the bigger of the two, much bigger in fact in terms of the buzz around it. This presentation, you know, it's very um, it, it, there's a lot of razzmatazz to it. There isn't any of that at Kerner Brussels Kerner, which does feel pretty low key. So. I thought I'd come here and um, immerse myself in the crowd and enjoy a bit of the, the pre-race atmosphere. Um, you can interview the riders as well in the mix zone, but I never see much point in interviewing the riders before the race. Uh, so we'll see. I mentioned Peter Sagan appeared on stage a few moments ago. I was just speaking to my colleague Jan-Peter de Vlieger, who interviewed him yesterday, and apparently he was very unhappy yesterday about the... The, the, the lack of P-stops in races these days. I mean, he's sounding like one of the old guard. We've got Astana on stage now. You can probably hear they're, they're actually playing the Astana rap. Uh, where the audience here are being treated, if that's the right word, to the, the video, the full video. And the riders are standing in front of that looking thoroughly shamefaced, as they should. 
I mean, the Astana Rapids oh, is the sort of thing that would go down absolutely brilliantly at the Ghent Six, isn't it? As kind of <laughs> half-time some, some entertainment. A ripple of, of appreciative applause there for the, for the Astana Rap. Are you going to get out on the course at all today or tomorrow? Um, I think today is more likely, but I, I'm not sure. I want to sort of pay attention to the, the men's and the women's races, so uh, I'm going to look at that uh, when I emerge from this very hot hall into the back into the cold it's she mentioned the weather i mean i said it was slippy underfoot but it's a beautifully sunny cold crisp morning so really really nice conditions for racing in um as long as the as long as the ice thaws and uh, i'm looking forward to a great a great day um uh, it really as you often say lionel it really does feel like the season starts properly here so let's bring it on well I'll let you go Richard make sure you pay attention to your fueling strategy after today's race so that you're fit and raring to go tomorrow for Kerner Brussels Kerner and we'll catch up on the podcast um, to discuss how the racing all panned out we we will before I head off got to finish Lionel we'll hear um, the arrival of the the big the big local team shall we quick step off a vinyl that was us at the start of Het Newsblad in Ghent on Saturday, or I was there at least, Lionel and Daniel, um, and we ended hearing the reception the Quick Step team got. That was about as good as it got for Quick Step on Saturday at Het Newsblad. As you said, Lionel, not the first time they've come up short in that race, but it was a particularly um, strange performance from them in a way. Um, Patrick Lefebvre overnight said that his team is not good at riding defensively. They need to anticipate the race. I wasn't entirely sure what he meant by that, um, but it seemed to me that everybody was trying to anticipate the race. I mean, this is uh, a tactic that more and more teams will try, given the importance now of being on the front foot. And the team that really did kind of take the race by the throat were Jumbo Visma, I suppose, um, Saturday and Sunday. And Tish Benot was... um, was was very impressive, rode, rode extremely well, as did Nathan Van Hoydonk, and then it was finished off by Wout Van Aert. But, I mean, we'll speak about Kurna Brussels Kurna in the next part. I think both races, um, the the winner, uh, a Jumbo Visma rider on Saturday and a, a quick set rider on Sunday, um, that, it puts a bit of a gloss on their team's performance, I think, because they were both fantastic individual performances that maybe did cover up some of the the questions that we might have about the team's respective performances. I mean, at Omloop on Saturday, I, I, I was impressed by Jumbo Visma's strength, but I was questioning their tactics at some points, um, especially Tish Benotz. What, 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 I mean, it, the so I was watching uh, Eurosport, the Italian Eurosport, and they they were also quite critical of Benut's move. I thought it was kind of a smart move because I'm not sure he would have got over the moor um, with the with the strongest riders and um, by doing what he did he made himself pretty useful um, that the, the group behind sort of stalled and 
Van Aert got a bit of an armchair ride into the moor. Um, I thought it worked well, and it, it made me think just the whole performance over the weekend that Tish Banu, he looks very much like someone who was a good team leader and might be an outstanding teammate. I agree with that. I, agree. I think there's loads of potential there, and I think they're they're finding their feet a little bit. Same for Christophe Laporte um, on Sunday. Again, um, he, I, I think it was complicated on Sunday. We'll get to that later on. Saturday, um, you know, it, 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 it's very easy to be wise after the event, isn't it? And in the end, Wout van Aert pulled off this fantastic victory, and we can say, well, you, the Jumbo Visma kind of plan worked very well. But the, the 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 first instigator of that, I suppose, was Nathan Van Hoydonk, who at times last year was a really important teammate for Wat Van Aert in these classics races, but often he was the only one. Um, and I think just having that extra support, not just Tish uh, Benut, but also uh, Mike Turnison's back now after missing the classics last year. And as a classics force, you know, they, they almost um, on Saturday looked as if they had, you know, could have the, the numbers of a, of a good quick step team in these kinds of races. So I think in terms of just the the strength that they have, I thought there was a lot of encouragement. But I just wonder whether tactically um they might, you know, sharpen up a bit. I don't know. Yeah, I think Richard, going back to our conversation from Saturday morning when you were in the track centre at the team presentation and we were wondering what Wout van Aert might do, this was his first race of the season. He's done a block of sort of altitude training. We wondered whether this might be the sort of tentative steps into the classic season because, of course, the bigger races are still a few weeks away. And as he said, there's a a few um, new riders to blood into this classics lineup. But I suppose in the final analysis, um, criticism of, of any sort of, um, you know, sort of blood and thunder tactics um, doesn't hold up, stand up to scrutiny because they won the race. But just watching it unfold, it just looked like the, the big hammer, the one-two. Banute goes and then when he was caught, Van Aert went. And just the, the timing of Van Aert's attack was perfect, wasn't it, going into the bottom of the Bosberg? I mean, he, he didn't need Banute to have done that before in order to do that. Um, but I suppose Banute's attack uh, earlier on going as they approached Hedarsbergen was the thing that took the impetus out of the rest of the break, wasn't it? Because everyone else then was just, well, we're not going to tow uh, Van Aert back up and fall for the sucker punch in the obvious way and so it played out in a slightly less obvious way but um, it was the lack of opposition I suppose from the other teams that was most noticeable. Quickstep and Trek did a lot of the chasing. Richard you made the point that Lefebvre said that Quickstep don't seem to know what to do when they're on the back foot and and all they seem to do is just ride very hard on the front trying to close a gap and, and failing to do so. The other teams that had multiple riders, AG2R, and Bahrain didn't really get their act together until it was too late. And, uh, I mean, I suppose it was a case of Van Aert doing the obvious thing, the attack into the bottom of the Bosberg and, and then the time trial to the finish. I mean, that is his wheelhouse, isn't it? And no one else having an answer. On quick step, chaps, I mean, well, you mentioned, Lionel, earlier, this sort of curse of Omloop and how winners of Omloop don't tend to go on to win Tour of Flanders. It's a bit like the par three tournament in the US Masters. But um, quick step, there have been numerous times in the last 10 years where they've gone into classic seasons and I've looked at them and thought, 
They've lost their centre forward. They've lost their, as Gianni Savio would call him, their bomber. Um, it happened sort of when Boonen went or faded and when um, Terpstra left as well. And, you know, this year it looks a little bit like that, but they've always managed to find, well, reinvent themselves and find a solution. And, you know, they did it with Philippe Gilbert when Philippe Gilbert looked finished, to be honest, um, you know, in his last year at BMC. And I, I think that that will probably be the case again. I don't know whether, you know, obviously they've got last year's Tour of Flanders winner in Asgreen and Asgreen's quick as well. He can finish moves off. Um, but I don't know whether, whether there's a little bit of sort of analysis and, and reevaluation um, to do on the part of their direct sportives just to figure out how this configuration, this kind of new configuration, or riders who have been there for a while but are, have different status now. So Seneschal has definitely moved up the pecking order, I feel. He, he's probably their third option now. And um, it might take them a while over the next couple of weeks, three or four weeks, to sort of dial that in. Interestingly, I was speaking to our colleague Hugo Kurovitz of Het Newsblad, and he said that the directors were really mulling over the, the week whether to put Jakobsen in Het Newsblad or Kurna Brussels Gurna because the new course um, at Kurna, uh, you know, there were more cl- more climbs, there was more climbing, and they were comparing the two races and not seeing much between them in terms of difficulty, um, and and suggesting you know that. Het Newsblad could finish in quite a big group sprint, as as looked possible slash likely for a lot of the race. I mean, it was quite it was windier than it than it looked. There was quite a lot of headwind, and it was quite a big group at Het Newsblad for much of the race. And had Wout van Aert not um, done what he did, it could have been quite a big group sprint. Would have been quite a big group sprint. So interesting. And and Jakobsen, you know, coped very well with the climbs on Sunday in Kurna Brussels Kurna, and even said that. Milan San Remo is a race he really fancies going to and trying to win in the future. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Rich, and your analogy, Daniel, about it being the sort of par three equivalent of the Tour of Flanders is, I think, actually a good one because it, it's a race without that extra uh, 55 or 60 kilometres, isn't it, which is the bit where the really strong riders do make the difference. So there isn't... Um, as they were heading into the final sort of 30 kilometres, there was the the risk that you might have had a group of 60 riders getting over the last climbs, and then it's a lot more difficult to make the difference. Uh, you know, so Benut had to do something, or somebody had to do something to drive a bit of a wedge into the group and, and create some splits, or at least um, you know put the pressure on so that when it regrouped, as it did, it would then split up again. Otherwise, we could have seen 60 riders um, all together uh, over the Moor, over the Bosberg, and then coming into the finish, and a, a sprint finish, well, a bit like we saw last year with Ballerini, I guess. I mean, the, the character of the race has changed a little bit in recent years. Well, the rider who softened them up before uh, Benut took over for Jumbo Visma was uh, Nathan Van Hoydonk, um, and I spoke to him at the finish of Het Newsblad, here he is. Um, well, very strong team performance, Nathan. You had a big role to play as well. Was that was that a plan for you to go at that point? Um, no, uh, not really. Not really that point. But uh, those four guys, we, we, we don't want, you don't want to underestimate them. They're strong riders. So uh, I would say, yeah, just just keep it going. Uh, I went on the Leberich and then uh, didn't really make any splits. Uh, then afterwards, I went again, just just to keep it going, actually. And then. Uh, 
I, I said to Wout, I said, I'm going to launch you on the on the Berendries. Uh, so I went all out uh, to bridge across to those four, uh, the four uh, breakaway riders. And then um, uh, Wout and Tish went. And then I, 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 saw, I saw them going and I I knew there had, to, there had to be splits because they're a world-class rider. So, um, and then from, from there on, actually, I just had to follow. Uh, so uh, it was actually quite, uh, quite, quite easy from there. Uh, you laid the foundations for that, moved on. How, how did it feel? Because we saw you in Gent-Webelgem last year, you and, and, and Wap, a very strong double act. But today we're having Tish there as well, having that extra strength in the team. How did that feel? That makes it much easier. Eh? I mean, uh, at that point when I went at the Berendries, I knew Wout still wouldn't be alone because we also had Mike there. And Mike missed uh, the classic campaign last year. Uh, so yeah, I must say um, I was I was feeling pretty confident that uh, Tish would take care of business uh, from then on because I knew I wouldn't make it back to uh, back to about. So. As is always the way, Richard, we look at these races and we evaluate them in retrospect, don't we? And we sort of work backwards. And it's easy now to put into context a sort of Jumbo Visma plan, uh, Benut Van Hooydonk, but also Mike Turnison, who was um, just softening things up at the phase before that probably 50 55 kilometers to go uh when it really did look like anybody's race because the break that uh had the likes of ben healy from ef and holman of movistar konishev of bike exchange was in there um that wasn't going to stay away um just a note for some other riders that were really active uh, Stefan Kung, who also was aggressive on Sunday, but Victor Kampenarts, I mean, he had a couple of crashes, didn't he? He went down in a crash on the Holloway uh, stretch of cobbles um, with Luke Durbridge was also down at that point. That was 56 kilometres to go. And then he had another problem, didn't he? Uh, but he got right back up to the front and uh, finished fifth in the end. Really impressive ride by Kampenarts, who has, well, Lock, stock and barrel has transformed himself from a time trial rider, world hour record, into a very handy classics rider, a real tough nut. Yeah, really impressive uh, ride from, from Camp and Arts, um, you know, uh, suggests that he could be a real a real force in these in these races. Um, and Ineos Grenadiers uh, also pretty active uh, in, in both races over the weekend. Uh, Magnus Sheffield, a young rider who's already caught the eye this year, um, certainly questionable tactically from him. His his move, I think, in Het Newsblad to go away on his own. But um, you know, he he is just learning the ropes. Although he does know these roads pretty well, but um, it was it was it, it showed his strength, which uh, which will be encouraging for the team. And Tom Pidcock was always up there, and uh, certainly a factor as well. Pidcock was very impressive, Rich. Um, quietly so. I think he felt he got his timing wrong a couple of times this weekend. But it's just really intriguing and unusual to see a, a rider of his build on the classics or on the cobbles um, in Belgium. I mean, I was just having a look back, and you know, I've mentioned before riders' weights, riders who have won Paris Roubaix or or not managed to win Paris Roubaix. And, um, you know, this is in no way to say that Tom Pidcock's classics career and career on the cobbles is doomed, um, because I I don't think it is. But just to sort of put in perspective um, how unusual what he's trying to do is, um, his weight is listed as 
58 kilos generally. I was looking back at former winners of the Tour of Flanders and going back 50 years, I can't find anyone who um, weighed less than 65 kilos. I think Michele Bartoli, who won in 1996, is or may well have been the, the lightest Tour of Flanders winner um, since about the 70s. Moreno Argentin was quite light as well, 66 kilos. Um, Nick Noyens was about 68. But it's pretty rare generally to find a Tour of Flanders winner um, who weighs under 70 kilos, um, most are significantly above that even. And I guess, you know, if the, there is a sort of climb on the Omloop route in particular where you might see a, a lighter rider struggle a bit more, it is somewhere like the Bosberg, which is, you know, not steep. And, um, you know, in the past we've seen riders, whether it be a Kristoff or going back further, you know, the sort of Musées, uh, Chmils, very kind of heavy riders, bulky riders. And they've tended to thrive on, on a climb like the Bosberg and Van Aert indeed. Strange day, isn't it, when we see uh, Filippo Ghana up there on the climbs and uh, a lightweight like Tom Pidcock up there on the cobbles for that for that team. But I did think it was interesting that wherever Pidcock went, uh, Jonathan Narvaez went as well. Um, almost like the sort of two of them going into uh, the moves in tandem. Um, I mean, together, they probably weigh one proper classics winning <laughs> rider's weight, don't they? Because <laughs> Narvaez, although he's stocky, is not a particularly um, heavy rider, but... Uh, that was that. And then um, the only other thing... Nar- Narvaez, the- what, I mean, just the interesting thing about him is I think it's a surprise for some people to see him emerge as a classic rider, but he was at quick step, wasn't he, um, before Ineos. And given that, you might be wondering, we might be wondering whether quick step are looking at him, wondering if they should have been uh, so hasty in letting him go. I, I, I mentioned this this quirky... Um, connection between Ecuador and Belgium last year. I think the ex-president of Ecuador was living in exile in Flanders, in in Belgium, and um, there was a, I think there was a, a warrant out for his arrest last year. In fact, I don't know what happened. With, I don't know what happened with that. But I remember mentioning it when um, Narvaez. I think it might even have been Kurna last year. Either Kurna or Omloop was looking pretty good. Well, as ever, chaps, the start of Kurna Brussels Kurna, you're as much debriefing Het Newsblad as looking ahead to what's going to happen um, in, in that race. Although there was quite a lot of interest in Sunday's race because of this new course um, with some new climbs and a bit of uncertainty about whether it would be a race for the sprinters and a lot of really good sprinters there, Caleb Ewan and Fabio Jakobsen, uh, Tim Merlier, all there. Um, so quite a lot of intrigue around that, but um, also the, the the quick step debrief um, led by Patrick Lefebvre in, as Fabio Jakobsen would tell us later, West Flanders dialect, um, which he claimed conveniently not to understand, although I think he got the tone. Um, but Lefebvre not happy at all on Saturday night about his team's performance in Het Newsblad. And on Sunday morning, I spoke to one of their riders, Eve Lampert, uh, about that and about the race he was about to to tackle um so let's hear first from eve lampert and then from greg van avermaet golden greg who was third at het newsblad um third and fourth for ag2r in fact on saturday with oliver nass and 
fourth and and they've not had the best of starts to the season so that was an important result for them so here's Eve Lampert and then Greg Van Avermaet yes yeah yesterday was not uh, our best race we did uh, we don't really have a specific reason reason to that so it's a bit strange for us not being able to show our power but uh, Hopefully today we have a nice revenge. Patrick said that you know that you're not so good defensively. You have to anticipate the race. Is that okay? I know you had some illness, some bad luck. Was that the main factor, or are other teams trying to do the yeah, same? I hope it is. Uh, I think we were not on full force yesterday, and uh, hopefully today we are uh, we are recovered and we can uh, show our, our power. What do you think about the new course? What difference will that make to the race today? Do you think? For me, it's much harder course. Uh, there are. Uh, it's not more mountains, but uh, harder ones, and uh, I think uh, it's possible to to go from far uh, far attacks can go to the finish line. Yes, Greg, a satisfying day for the team yesterday, the third and fourth. Yeah, it's been good. You know, uh, uh, it's always a first race of the classics. You no, never really know where you're standing, so it's a, a typical parkour where you where you see where you go and I think for for us as a team uh, being third and fourth is great uh, to have this result in the pocket the podium in a world tour race it's always something and uh, it's something very where we can build on what do you expect today from the the changes to the course a uh, different kind of race yes we have a lot of different teams also you know uh, in the past we had not so much big changes in teams we a lot of riders at the same race omlop and kurna but you see the last 3 4 years a lot of uh, teams are making different uh, setups more in uh, terms of sprinters so this doesn't help of course the the attackers or the classic riders to be uh, make a good result in Kurna but we always try it's a new parkour we will see how it goes and uh, I think uh, we still have a chance but you're in a race like Kurna you have to ride smart and you have to take the, t- the sprinters with you otherwise uh, it's hard to get to the finish I was going to say Rich the third and fourth for Van Avermaet and Narsen is uh their speciality isn't it it feels like it happens in every single classics race but it probably hasn't I remember E3 where they I think they were fourth and sixth something like that Uh, but at least they got one place on the podium and I suppose the just in the wash up of Het Newsblad Bahrain victorious you know they probably had um, the rider that stood to gain most if it all could have come back together Sonny Colbrelli I think would have given uh, Van Aert a bit of a um run for his money in the final sprint but as we always see there's just not the numbers he had Mohoric there a teammate in the the group and I think uh, Fred Wright was still in there until very late mm. as well wasn't he um, good yeah and uh, I think Hausler was perhaps distant a little bit before uh, the run in um, but uh, yeah it was a uh, well it was one of those days where Really, no one had an answer for Van Aert. And I suppose just a yes or no, is that the new Cassoulet Award leading performance? I mean, it ticks a lot of boxes there, doesn't it? A big, The biggest race of the season so far and an impressive solo win. We, po- yeah, possibly. But I'm going to make a case later on for Taco van der Horn, as, as we'll hear. Um, van Avermaet, they are mentioning that a lot of... Um, in the old days, he was suggesting, and he probably remembers those. Um, it used to just be the the sa- pretty much the same roster for both Hetnewsblad and Kurna Brussels Kurna, and that's that's changed a bit over recent years. And and there were quite a few changes to the lineups for Sunday, with with some sprinters coming in for for Sunday's race. Um, and it seemed to me, uh, watching it, that Quick Step understandably were very keen not to find themselves in the same position 
as they've been on Saturday. I, I mean, we should mention that they had some bad luck on Saturday. I think um, Lampert had a couple of punctures. Askreen is recovering or getting over COVID. I mean, he's over it, but he's he's not perhaps in the condition he'd like to be. And he was trying to put his team on the front foot, wasn't he, on Sunday? Um, you know, quite aggressive fairly early on, trying to force moves clear. And it was really deja vu with Tish Benot. Um I get the two races muddled up in my head now because all I can see is that very familiar um, kind of long figure of Tish Benut, um with his kind of arched back. Um, reminds me of Fausta away at, Copy on the bike. He reminds me of Fausta Copy. Narrow, he, 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 he rounded does, yeah. shoulders, yeah. Yeah, really does, yeah. Um, and yeah, he was trying to force the moves clear again, seemed to eventually drop himself, Tish Benut on... Uh, Sunday uh, it looked really good it looked really impressive and then suddenly he was off off the back of the group with Tom Pidcock um but nevertheless um you know uh quick step as i say trying to get themselves um you know in the front of the race when they've got that that weapon of Jakobsen behind so a better performance from them but uh, a kind of strange race as well i thought Strange in the sense that we didn't quite know how the course was going to play out. I mean, it's always had a sort of longish run in from the final climbs, hasn't it? But 50 kilometres is quite a stretch. And I think the climbing that preceded that run in was harder than it had been in previous editions. There's some, the Quadamont is a fantastic looking climb. It's brilliant to ride. It's a really good focal point for any race. But in a in a short race shorter race like Kerner Brussels Kerner it sort of tended to have a sort of stultifying effect on the race I felt as if everyone's kind of waiting for it to be the moment to string things out and and put pressure on Uh, and without that in the middle there was wasn't the same kind of predictable rhythm to um, the bit from sort of 80 kilometers to go to 50 kilometers to go I thought and you mentioned the break. I mean, it was some power in that break. Ben Healy in it again for EF. Taco van der Horn. Richard, your new favourite rider by the sounds of it. Um, Vandenberg as well. Luke Durbridge, who uh, crashed the previous day, as I've mentioned, in that seven-man group. And they had a decent lead. And when it came down, they still were staying clear, weren't they? It just never quite got um, brought under control completely. Yeah, and when the, the, the group bridged up to them and Jumbo Visma had three riders up there, Christophe Laporte, um, Nathan Van Hoydonk again, Tish Benoit again, um, they were on paper then in a very, very strong position, um, especially with a guy like Laporte who can who can finish it pretty well. Um, so it, it looked like it was, you know, they were play, playing their cards well at that point. I think the problem because they they then and Benoit again was was appeared to be wanting to break it up and you wondered why he was doing that when they looked to be in a strong position and then Laporte um, attacked with 18 kilometers to go and you thought why is a, a guy who's got a fast finish doing that he took Narvaez with him and Vanderhorn but I think the problem speaking to a couple of riders that finished the problem was that there was never full commitment in that group um, so although on paper it looked as if it had every chance of going to the finish as a group there wasn't the the cohesion the commitment from everybody in it to to really make it work yeah i don't know about about you chaps though um i thought laporte could still have won um i thought i mean it's obviously this is 
classic Monday morning quarterback, but um, I did feel that if he'd launched his sprint 100 metres earlier, 100 metres sooner, um, then he would ultimately have, have won. Um, and, you know, just on Jumbo Visma, he obviously is riding very well. Van Hooydonk was looking strong. Van Aert, I mean, Laporte only came down from altitude, I believe, on Friday. Um, he had COVID a couple of weeks ago or a few weeks ago, and that set him back in his preparation. So um, to compensate for that, he stayed at altitude for a bit longer. But, you know, it, it was interesting over the weekend just to see the number of riders who and were racing for the first time this season, and most of them had been at altitude, whether it was Van Aert or Colbrelli. And, you know, in the past, in previous years, we've always heard that this can be a problem, that, you know, often the first few days after coming down from altitude or even the first week or so, um, riders do tend to underperform, but it just shows that the extent to which teams have really dialed that in over the years. And they, they don't really have any fears, I don't think, about throwing riders straight into, you know, into racing, into important races um, after stints at altitude. And I'm, I mean, it was a fantastic weekend for Jumbo Visma as well, because Sepkus was very strong in the south of France, as was Jonas Vingegaard. Well, Daniel, you mentioned Laporte um, had, you know, a good chance of winning uh, and almost a double for Jumbo Visma. Um, he did, you know, that group did look like it might stay clear um, and, and were only caught in the last in the last few hundred metres. But um, uh, one rider who, who did think they were going to stay clear was Taco van der Horn. He was anticipating finishing second to Laporte in the race. Um, and as you mentioned, Lionel, he is my new favourite. Um, he is definitely... I think on the basis of his ride on Sunday, a contender for the Castellet Prize. And this answers my question of whether you can win that without winning. And I think his ride on, on Sunday was definitely deserving of of a mention when we talk about that prize. But anyway, here he is at the finish um, after a, a big day out, Taco van der Horn. Spending as long in the mix zone as you were out, out, out the front today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You've had a long day. Um, I mean, you held on for, for a tenth in the end. That's not what you were hoping for, I guess, but that was a, a, a big, tough day that you had out there. Yeah, it was. Yeah, 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 no. And with 50 metres to go, I was thinking, ah, oh, second, nice. But uh, then they come, ah, oh, shit, yeah. Did you, I mean, it's such a kind of unusual race, this, and, you know, it's a sprinter's race, but it's also a race where breakaways yeah, can win. Yeah. Did you, at what point did you think you might be able to hang on? Um, no, actually, I had a plan already in December or November to go in the break here and to try to survive the hill zone and then uh, go uh, uh, with the with first group. Some guys split, uh, I was thinking that the, the Bruns were split in the hill zone and then maybe 10, 20 guys come come to me and then try to ride the final so that was also the reason I didn't ride yesterday so there was already planned for a long time and yeah it went pretty well um, but in the end yeah not the, not the result that was possible so when you were in that early break was that affecting the way you rode in that early break were you conserving a little bit knowing that riders would probably come up uh, no yeah in the first bit with them they uh, uh, opened their gas quite early so we have to really speed up already and uh, because uh, uh, yeah, otherwise we catch by the by the buns. And it was the plan to survive the hill zone because you know that if they they you on the last two climbs like the the uh, trio or the if they catch you before, then you're probably dropped. But they catch me before and I could hang on, so that was pretty uh, was pretty happy with that. And then I was feeling good uh, in the final. So yeah, I was hoping to. To survive a bit longer in uh, after the Kreisberg, Kru- 
and uh, now we have to uh, still hang on on there, and it was it was hard. When that group went, you know, with the the three of you in it, were you surprised you were able to go with that? Were you surprised the way the the race kind of worked itself out? Yeah, I was really uh, really feeling good still in the final, and I was thinking, ah, oh, I uh, guess uh, I saw Laporte was strong and Kung and Trentin, so I was a bit gambling on them. But then Kung couldn't close the gap, and I think, nah, now now's the moment. I have to go. And then I could close it, so that was pretty strong. And uh, uh, yeah, I was uh, I was pretty surprised actually. Yeah. Um, my colleague Saif tells me you're a Graham O'Brien fan. Yeah, I am. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, uh, he's hanging in our in our house with the big uh, big picture because of the the arrow position and how how he does it. So uh, You've yeah. Never met him. No, never, never. Oh, you have to meet him at some point. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Great, good. thanks very much. You're welcome. Tackle yeah. van der Horn there saying that he had planned that move back in November, December, and, and also revealing uh, that he's a big fan of Graham O'Brien. Maybe not a surprise given his his handlebars um, and obviously his uh, his uh, thinking about aerodynamics. Um, another rider who really impressed me over the weekend, Stefan Kung of Groupama FTG, uh, we asked a question a couple of weeks ago, didn't we, after he finished second and was really trounced by Remco Evenepoel in the Algarve. We didn't know how to how to assess um, Evenepoel's performance there because we didn't know what sort of form Kung was in. Well, I think we do know now because Kung looked very, very strong indeed uh, on Saturday and Sunday. And he's a very strong time trialist, but as he, as he told me at the finish is also targeting the classics as well this year. So here is what Stefan Kung said at the finish of Kurna, Brussels Kurna. Well, you've had a, a hard weekend. We've seen a lot of you the last couple of days. How, how do you reflect on today's race in particular? You were up there again. Yeah, I mean, today when I had a look at the parkour, they were saying, ah, you don't have the quarry mount anymore. And that's when, but then I knew these climbs down there. Uh, and so it just had to be up there. And luckily Ineos kind of uh, lighted up the race. And uh, then it was a text after a text I tried to follow. We were uh, quite a good group, but then we always had a few guys who weren't collaborating. And then it's hard to jump after everything and like really make the difference. But nevertheless, I was feeling good and uh, yeah, it's a good start to the classic campaign this year. Did that breakaway have a, a good chance, you think, if everybody had been cooperating in the break? Yeah, absolutely. Then it's game over because uh, we were a lot of strong guys, but thing was we caught we caught a few guys from the early break and they said oh we were in the early break we don't ride anymore but we also had a few guys who had quite an interest that it came back together like uh, the guy from uh, Bahrain and so on but yeah it's the it's really like the DNA of this race it's always like that it's a little bit frustrating but if you never try you never win we saw a lot of riders just come in for this race a lot of changes in the teams you rode both and you rode both very hard but how much was a factor how much was yesterday a factor in, in your ability today to you know to, to ride as hard as you'd, you'd have liked i didn't feel tired today i was uh, feeling good this uh, didn't affect me but yeah uh, as you said like uh, a lot of teams changed the lineup or at least particularly uh, a part of it uh to bring in a sprinter our uh, real sprinter is in in the uae for the uae tour and our other one uh, is is still recovering from COVID, so yeah, we had to we had to double up. <laughs> and for you, does this signal? I mean, are the classics something that, that interests you a lot this year? Yeah, yeah, I tried a different approach a little bit, and uh, yeah, the goal is to be up there and really 
big spring classics and uh, until now it's going good so it's about staying healthy doing a good Pyrenees and then we'll be here again in one month. Well Fabio Jakobsen the winner of the day he's had an extraordinary start to the season hasn't he that's win number five from 11 days of racing and uh, when I spoke to him before the first Spanish stage race of the year that he did, the Volta Valenciana. He was talking about Kerner, Brussels Kerner being his first objective of the season, his first big objective of the season. So he's ticked that one off. And I guess it will make him um, the sort of rider that you would look to for Gent Wevelgem, Dwarsdor, Vlaanderen, Gelder Price in uh, late March and early April. And I suppose a win of this stature does nudge him ahead of Mark Cavendish in the race for a Tour de France slot with uh, Quickstep. I mean, he was up against Caleb Ewan, who likewise has had a very good start to the season, climbing particularly well, um, Ewan, as we've noted already. Uh, But when it came to the head-to-head, Jakobsen was the quicker man but maybe benefited from a little bit more team support perhaps uh, over the course of the race because uh, Lotto Sudal, to quote um, uh, football parlance, are a bit down to the bare bones, aren't they? I mean, you say that, um, but in the end, I think the nature of the finish, um, the uncertainty over whether those three would actually be caught meant that the sprinters had to do it on their own to a certain extent. Um, Caleb Hume was, was a long way back. It was a tough headwind finish as well um but Jakobsen used the break very cleverly as as his lead out effectively he went early um jumped behind them and then went past them I mean he he was asked afterwards in the press conference whether he was the best sprinter in the world at the moment and he said yes (laughs) um as you might expect but he's an increasingly confident figure and when I think back to him at the start of the Vuelta, you know, I spoke to him in Burgos. I remember at that point, you know, the story was just he was trying to come back. He was trying to return. Um, he was still proving himself that he could he could still compete at that level. And I compare that to the sort of swagger now um, that he has, the confidence he has, the way he speaks, the way he carries himself is all really, really impressive, I have to say. Um he gave a very, very good press conference after the race um, where he spoke incredibly eloquently about the race, about himself, about his team, about the Patrick Lefebvre um, debrief the night before where, as, as I mentioned earlier, he said he didn't understand uh, West Flanders' dialect so he couldn't report what had been said conveniently enough. But he said it was very a very awkward um, conversation with Lefebvre in the hotel. He did all this with a lot of humour, um, and, you know, uh, he, he just seems to me like somebody at the very top of his game at the moment. And I, I don't think, uh, you know, he's beating Caleb Ewan now. Who who else is there? I mean, Dylan Grenewigan has not um, looked as impressive so far as Jakobsen. I don't really see anybody um, beating him at the moment. And he's he's just getting more and more confident with every race. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thanks very much indeed to Science in Sport, our longtime sponsor. We are very grateful to them for their support. And if you'd like 25% off all your Science in Sport products, the code, of course, is SISCP25. 
and use that at the checkout at scienceandsport.com for 25% off SISCP25. Richard, you mentioned earlier you went for a ride. You did the Kerner Kerner, really. You almost stopped at Rousselaer, I noticed, from your Strava file. Um, I mean, for for all that, you know, Kerner Brussels, Kerner actually really doesn't go anywhere near Brussels. So I, I could say that I did Kerner Brussels, Kerner as well, in a way. Well, they got a bit closer. Not going to, anywhere near Brussels. A bit closer to it, didn't they? They got a bit closer, yeah. yeah. But you went, uh, by the looks of it, Harold Becker, which is obviously very close to Kerner. Uh, nice little loop by the looks of it. Let's see. I'm spying mm, on your exactly. Strava data here. 66.7 kilometres in 2 hours 24. Uh, 220 obviously metres of climbing. I mean, you got held up. You basically... Yeah, a lot of climbing. Yeah, there. you just basically found the flattest roads possible. Well done. Not not that hard around there. I mean, it's much harder to find climbs. I did my best. Um, but very enjoyable, beautiful, crisp, clear, sunny day. And uh, and I was wearing my new map kit, of course, my deep winter map kit. We have a, a new collaboration with MAP, um, the fruits of which will be revealed very, very soon um, and excitingly. But I'm wearing their, their deep winter collection, the tights and the, the jacket and the gloves. And they're fantastic. Kept me nice and warm on a what was a very sunny, lovely, but very cold day. Yeah, looking forward to revealing a bit more about this collaboration. And uh, I think, it, well, it will. I think the listeners are going to be very interested to see the direction it goes in a little bit later on this spring when we unveil um, some designs and give the listeners the opportunity to pick one that goes into production i'll say no more about that at the moment don't want to spoil a lot there i said quite a lot but we're getting towards a point where we can actually reveal what we're what on earth we're playing at (laughs) (laughs) well listen chaps i was in in belgium uh, at the weekend but uh, and i'm still there in fact but uh, there was a lot of other racing as well um we talked at length about the uae tour last week uh no no real surprises there as it as it finished with Tari Pogacar winning again and uh, sealing the overall win. Um, any, anything catch your eye there and elsewhere in France and, and Spain as some of the other races went on? Well, I think we all, all expected the denouement we got in the UA Tour, didn't we, chaps? It was really an action replay of last year on Jebel Hafit. Um, Pogacar doing precisely what we talked about last week, that sort of pogcineration um, that usually takes place in the closing sort of few hundred metres of climbs and, you know, that explosive finishing speed that we talked about last week and it really makes him very difficult to beat. And I think also... Can be, well, the, the, watching a stage like that can be quite misleading in that, you know, you, you think you see Pogacar struggling to hold, in this case, Adam Yates's wheel. And it was a, a, an extraordinary attack that Yates put in. But I really think the kind of proof in the pudding is in those final proof of the pudding, proof of the pudding. Proof in the pudding. Proof of the pudding. The proof of the pudding. Proof of the is pudding in, is a neat thing. Well, the way he eats up those final meters and ultimately drops people. And I think that's where you see how superior he is. So no real surprise there, I suppose. You know, some of his rivals or um, would be soon to be rivals might have wondered whether his brush with his short brush with COVID had set him back in his preparations this year but that's not the case he seems to be firing as is his 
young UAE teammate, Brandon McNulty, um, who's been in fantastic form. Um, Got to be a contender for your Castellet Prize, Lionel, with a couple of his rides so far this year. One in the Challenge Mallorca and then one at the weekend in the... It was the first of the doubleheader, wasn't it? It was the Ardèche Classic, which... um, took place on some beautiful roads um, sort of out and back from a very famous village for people interested in wine and Rhone wine connoisseurs of Rhone wines Cornas world famous um, I think I stayed there last year on the Dauphiné couldn't couldn't afford any of the Cornas wines they cost an arm and a leg but um, McNulty extremely strong makes you wonder what or how he'll fit into UAE's plans particularly at the Tour de France I mean last year was his sort of first taste of the Tour de France we saw some brilliant rides for him some sort of quite nervous edgy rides from him I remember a terrible crash he had one day where he just disappeared off the off the road into the undergrowth in the mountains somewhere was that in the Alps Um, but he was pretty valuable in the last week for Pogacar in the tour last year and I guess he will be again and then as I mentioned earlier Jumbo Visma starting the season really well um, Pog sorry not Pog Rog the other one um, he was sort of eased in didn't he um, looking like a 1980s aerobic teacher in his um, black tights blue shoes um, <laughs> yellow and black leotard. He just needs a headband, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah. Um, but he, I mean, he he did attack briefly on Saturday, didn't he? As to sort of tee up Sepp Kuss, but didn't look as though um, he was. Well, he was taking it seriously, but um, certainly bigger objectives to come for Rog. So they have certainly started the season very well, or as underscored by Jonas Vingegaard, just outmuscling, outpowering everyone, including Juan Ayuso, who we've spoken about quite a lot on the pod, another UAE rider, 19 years old. And, you know, chaps, uh, we've spoken so much in the last couple of years about these the 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 emergence of of all of these young riders, but they are getting younger. I mean, it occurred to me at the weekend that three real protagonists over the last few days and would have been 19 years old. Magnus Sheffield, um, very much in evidence for Ineos in Belgium at the weekend. Uh, Vacek in the UAE winning for Gazprom. And then Ayuso, I mean, 19 years old. I was thinking earlier, even McNulty at 23, not too long ago, he would have been perceived as a real greenhorn, a real rookie at 23 years of age. Um, but to have three 19-year-olds. I mean, I remember when it caused an absolute sensation that Pippo Pozzato um, turned pro uh, 19 as a teenager. That was just something that never happened. I mean, you've been tipping Ayuso for greatness since he was about four years old, I think, uh, Daniel. But I think the other thing that really um, stood out from this weekend's racing is uh, the the depth of talent in just a very small handful of teams uh, at Fornardesh UAE on the podium along with uh, Quickstep and Jumbo Visma. I mean, it's basically the the three teams um, that are hoovering up everything because uh, Vingegaard won the Drome Classic and we saw Alaphilippe for Quickstep up there as well. Um, I mean, didn't get on the podium in the end, but. It does feel a bit like sort of three teams against the rest, not just in one or two races, but everywhere at the moment. And that's a trend I suppose we've seen over the last few years, and it's one that uh, seems to be embedding slightly. But just, I'm very relieved to um, realise, Daniel, that you're 
you're giving the Cassolet Prize the due deference I would expect from you. Uh, you haven't really understood how it works. Brilliant. Perfect. That just, to me, solidifies in the minds of the entire public uh, what a, an important and prestigious prize this is going to turn out to be because Brandon McNulty was the first holder. It's a kind of winner stays on um, approach a bit like I'm sure you played pool in pubs in the Midlands at some point as a teenager you know you put your pound coin on the edge of the pool table and you play the winner and the winner carries on staying on so that's the sort of the theory so w the current holder is Lutsenko still and I suppose what what are we saying then it's Van Aert or McNulty or Van, do either or of Van those and to answer the question that we've that's plagued this competition in its formative days, can someone lead the competition without winning the race? I was thinking back to the Tour de France last year in stage eight, Pogacar's uh, incredible romp through the remains of the break. He didn't win the stage, but you would have to say that can't be disqualified from winning the Cassolet Prize. So I think there we have our definitive answer. You don't have to win a race in order to uh, win the prize, but... Does Van der Horn's near miss? I, I, I'm going to ask. I mean, he was in the break all day. An important point of clarification, Lionel. I'm sure I know the answer. It is. It's. It's. It's open to men and women, isn't it? I mean, nothing. Are you going to have separate prizes? Well, I was hoping that you would do a similar prize in the cycling podcast, Feminine. So at the end of the yeah, year, we would a have idea. a uh, male mm. winner and a female winner, and they will each get a Stacy Snyder. Um, Cassolet Bowl, which will have the names of the winners on the side, and there'll be, I'm hoping, a limited edition run of these Cassolet Bowls for people to buy. Because somebody did su suggest Annemiek van Vluten for her ride on Saturday, a, con a contender certainly. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a great idea. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I'm 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 all in for van der Horn um, to to take it over just for the 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 audacity of his ride on Sunday. But Daniel's shaking his head at it's that. It's not just the shaking of the head, it's the, the height of the eyebrows. This, uh, I have a there. feeling that's yeah. the other this thing, is, the giveaway. This so it's is got a cartoon be the face. equivalent of the Eindhoven team time trial. It's, it will hopefully be as short lived <laughs> as that, and it certainly is as prestigious. Those who remember. I mean, you have the casting vote line. Short lived, so. short lived yeah. and derided. Is that what we're going who's for? Who's got it? Who, who is, who's, who's currently holding the Cassoulet Bowl? I think, oh man, it's difficult, isn't it? Because I think Wout van Aert's performance was uh, impressive, but again, more to come from him. You know, that's kind of a, you know, one under par performance for uh, for um, Wout van Aert. I mean, if he did something similar in a much bigger race, it would be a no-brainer. But I think it's all, it's that's the thing about a bowl of cassoulet, isn't it? It's a little bit of everything. You've got to have the beans as well as the duck. You've got to have the, um, you've got to have the sausage. So I'm going to, just to put a smile on your face, Richard, let's say Taco van der Horn for his near miss uh, is the new leader. I may regret this, but um, it may only be a short-lived lead, of course. But let's, uh, let's award it to Taco van der Horn, the new leader. Well, I hope, he, I hope I'm, is he riding tomorrow? I don't think he is. I would have, I would have made a, a beeline for his team boss to tell him. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, are there any other business from the from the races or or even anything else from the weekend or the last few days, chat? Just to sort of round up the the kind of elite racing that was happening at the weekend um, on the men's side. Anyway, the um, the new Galician stage race or Gran Camino 
not really a tour of Galicia Volta Galicia um, revival because that race. So we're talking about the region in the extreme northwest of Spain. That race has had its own, or has had a tour, the Volta Galicia, for a long time since 1933, with a couple of interruptions. And but in the last sort of 20 years, it has continued as an amateur race. It's sort of lost lost its professional status and now the same region which is featured in the Vuelta España pretty prominently in the last 10 years or so on numerous occasions and did so last year it really um, well didn't quite decide the race um, but it certainly provided some fantastic action on the penultimate day with um, Superman Lopez of course his famous now infamous early um, abortion of that race um, so that's the region we're talking about and this is a new race that took place over the last four days or Gran Camino which is a nod to the Camino de Santiago the famous pilgrimage we talked about last year at the Vuelta and the race was won in pretty convincing well convincing it was narrow but um, pretty emphatic impressive style by Alejandro Valverde of course in his final season this year and also someone who's riding very well that was his second well second and third wins of the season because he won a stage and he won the overall and um, yeah a very promising um, exciting race I thought with some good riders you know often um, stage races are launched the the calendar is so crowded these days and it's a bit of a struggle for them to assemble really good fields particularly when there's so much racing going on uh, at this time of year but there were some very good riders there Michael Woods uh, winning a stage at the Mirador de Ezzaro um, Valverde Fulsang was there as well so um, it was it was um, a good debut for o Gran Camino Just before we move on chaps um the while we're while we're speaking, the Giro have announced their wild cards um, for this year. So Daniel's eyebrows have shot up again. Alps and Fenex qualify by virtue of their world ranking. Three wild card teams: Bardiani, uh, Dronehopper, and Eolo. So any any surprise there? There was talk of Arkea Samsic, wasn't there? They uh, possibly um, Arkea Samsic had already opted out. They had oh, already they announced had. that Sorry. they did not want to yeah, be in the Giro yeah, yeah. this year. So no real surprises at all. Uh, I mean, I suppose uh, there have been conversations at certain points about Gazprom. Um, they'd sort of thrown their hat into the ring, but for reasons I guess we'll, we'll probably discuss in a minute, um, that would have jarred significantly, particularly at the moment. Well, you mentioned last week, uh, Lionel, we were recording before the invasion of Ukraine by Russia about the Gazprom team. And I guess that, that issue came into sharper focus, didn't it, um, at the UAE tour as the race went on and as events uh, developed in Ukraine? Yeah, it certainly did. I mean, tensions were rising, weren't they, when uh, Gazprom riders were in the escapes. But this really came into a very sharp focus uh, on stage six, the morning after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, when three Gazprom riders got into the breakaway and Mateusz Vacek, a very young Czech rider, 19 years old, won the stage. And um, really, we should be talking about a young rider winning a big race um, in impressive fashion. But um, that wasn't really what was catching the eye, was it? Because... Seeing the three Gazprom riders in the break the morning after, basically a, a war is effectively declared in Europe. 
um, I think was problematic to say the least. I should just say, I mean, the, the difficulty when discussing this is, you know, Gazprom as one of the smaller teams, it's their role in the race to get riders in brakes, isn't it? And so um, the Gazprom management, the team management had uh, a choice. They either perform their role in the race, send riders up the road, or they keep their heads down and stay in the bunch. And I'm not party to the discussions that went on. Uh, I certainly don't hold the riders responsible, really, because one, I don't have no idea what their political leanings are. And two, they are riding for a team. They're, they're doing their job, aren't they? And f- particularly for Vacek on a sort of personal level, um, you know, congratulations to him for the win. But for the sport itself, I mean, especially how things have escalated over the weekend and the way other sports have um, have tackled this issue to you know varying degrees. Um, Gazprom's place in the peloton is it's a it's a difficult one really to reconcile. I mean, they have races coming up uh, in the near future. They're doing Trofeo Luguelia this week, I believe. They're on the start list for Tirreno Adriatico. As I mentioned last week, uh, you know that moves were afoot to. Um, for other sports to take action against what is basically uh, the Russian state's uh, involvement in sport. The Champions League football final has been taken away from St. Petersburg, the Gazprom Arena. Uh, Zenit St. Petersburg, who play there, are owned by Gazprom as well. Um, there's Schalke in Germany. Schalke in Germany, who are sponsored by Gazprom, have announced that they've removed the Gazprom logo from their jerseys until further notice. That's right. And, um, you know, FIFA has has gone in a a little bit more softly, um, basically taking the IOC's approach when the IOC sought to sanction Russia um, for the, the... sort of institutionalized or the allegations of institutionalized doping uh saying that russia have to play as the union of russia or federation of russia um rather than uh, you know under the flag of russia and with the national anthem but poland the czech republic and sweden three teams who could face russia in a world cup playoff to to reach the world cup finals later this year have said that they won't uh, play against Russia either in Russia or anywhere else and so I suppose uh, cycling um, has this issue the UCI I did actually ask them whether they had a position on this um, last week and they put a statement on their website saying that following the development of the situation in the Ukraine and with concern and we firmly condemn the violation of international law and of Ukraine's territorial integrity. The sport and cycling have often been able to lead the way to peace and dialogue. These values must inspire the Russian government so that it can cease hostilities and resume dialogue to give a chance for a peaceful resolution of this military action. And they obviously express their support for Ukrainians and the Ukrainian cycling family. And they um, hoisted the Ukrainian flag outside the headquarters in Egla in Switzerland. Uh, Pavel Sivakov issued a statement on social media. He's, of course, um, Russian, but born in Italy. Let me get And spent most of his life in France. I mean, yeah. he's got a French, I think he's got French citizenship as well, but he has competed for, for Russia. And he said, it's been a difficult few days seeing what's currently happening. First of all, I just want to say that I'm totally against the war and can't get around 
of my head around what's going on in Ukraine, I guess that's meant to say. All my thoughts are with the Ukrainian people. Secondly, I also want to, people to understand that most of the Russians only want peace and never ask for all of this to happen. We shouldn't be targets of hate just because of our origin. I know these few lines won't make a big difference to the current situation, but I just wanted to share it. Peace. And I suppose that's the... That's how this issue separates, doesn't it? You, separating the athletes and individuals from the institutions. Um, and I think we've reached a point over the weekend where it is time to hold the institutions to account uh, without punishing uh, unduly the individuals, difficult as that may be to resolve. With regards to the Gazprom team, they've also, of course, got lots of partners, you know, <coughs> um, blue chip partners who may well be reviewing their involvement with the team, um, which could could cause real real problems for the team if, if they want to carry on uh, competing. It, it's really difficult, isn't it? I mean, over the weekend as well, the, the winners of the various races have, have, have mentioned Ukraine, what's going on in there. I thought um, Fabio Jakobsen did, did, said something that, that really um, really did hit home in, in, in the sense that he, he compared you know, 25-year-olds like him fighting on their bikes with 25-year-olds in Ukraine fighting for their freedom, for their country, um, which was quite powerful. Um, and, you know, there are other sort of tentacles to this, aren't there? The UAE itself. The UAE abstained on a, a UN resolution to condemn Russia's action. Um, and I, I guess over time, and as this develops, you know, there will be, uh, be a, a consensus on on Russia internationally as there is emerging and there will be very few it seems countries um who uh who continue to support Russia and UAE may well be one of them and of course the the team the UAE team Emirates is a team that's that's not just um got a, a sponsor from the UAE it is sponsored by the UAE and I just wonder if that that becomes a problem at some point because um you know we've spoken a bit in the podcast about about sports washing and um how it can be allegedly used by by countries or companies or institutions to um to soften their image or to improve their image but this this goes beyond image and reputation this is about actual actions and um it, it could be quite uncomfortable uh seeing riders riding in the colors and the and the name of the UAE um in 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 big international races like the Tour de France um i just wonder how that's going to play out over the next few weeks and months yes rich and, and similarly i mean you talk about it being you know very difficult to know how it's going to play out but it's also very difficult to to sort of see clearly in well if we're talking about the Gazprom sponsorship um, in particular, it, it seems a curious one because they're a small team with limited budget. But and if you go back to, um, well, 15 or so years ago when the Katusha team was being, well, that was sort of the, the seed for that, what became that World Tour team was kind of germinating. And what was what was um, termed at the time, what was described at the time as a Russian, I think it was a Russian global cycling project. And there was a gentleman called Igor Makarov that was... Um, that was really behind that and he was one of these oligarchs who had made his fortune um, in gas through the with the Itera company and Gazprom and Itera had a, a, a relationship or a kind of a symbiosis 
it was quite difficult to sort of discern whether there was a hero, whether there was a villain, whether they were enemies, whether they were friends, but um, a, a heavy level of, or a, a high degree of kind of complicity at various times, and Gazprom even um, appeared on the Katusha jersey um when they were in the world tour so that's a that's a a bit of a head scratcher and and i guess we'll be we'll continue to be so just on a more sort of human level i mean um there are numerous ukrainian riders and also direct sportifs in the peloton i think yaroslav popovich was in uae and popovich of course he finished third in the giro d'italia 20 or so years ago and was then part of lance armstrong's u.s postal and discovery teams now a direct sportif Trek Segafredo and he's been talking about well almost wanting to go back to Ukraine and and to to fight and he has friends and family there and he was at the UAE tour and he said that he was finding it difficult to go to to talk to friends individuals who were previously friends at Gazprom like Ivan Rovny who's a direct sportive there and a former teammate of Popovich and um, well if you want to if you want to find out a bit about how you can maybe help people in Ukraine, and Popovich has been posting video messages and um, and, and various informa- bits of information on his um, Instagram feed on how you might be able to help. But I also thought at the weekend, chaps, um, I, I couldn't help thinking back to Andre Chmiel and about Andre Chmiel, um, the... Well, it's very difficult to say what nationality he was because he had several of them, as we'll discuss in a minute. But he won Kuna, Brussels Kuna, twice in 1998 and 2000. Then, you know, when we saw Wout van Aert um, going away over the Bosberg on Saturday in Omloop, I also thought about Chmiel, who kind of went away in exactly the same, or almost exactly the same fashion on the other side of the Bosberg to win the 2000 Tour of Flanders. And, you know, he, he was particularly, or he felt particularly relevant, his story this weekend, because Chmiel was a guy who who was born um, in the extreme east of Russia, almost, well, he was about 15 kilometers from the Chinese border, grew up in Ukraine because his mother was an opera singer, soprano, who spent a lot of time in o- Odessa um, down in Ukraine, but she traveled all over what was then the Soviet Union. Chmiel also spent his summers in Moldova, or what became Moldova, with his grandmother. And um, when he turned professional, well, he turned professional um, as a Soviet. Then when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, well, he became Russian. Then in 1993, he became Moldovan. And in the, the famous World Championship road race that Lance Armstrong won, Chmiel was pretty prominent in that riding for Moldova in a white, a plain white jersey that he paid for himself. He paid the entry fee for the World Championships um, himself. And um, well, that, that World Championships was actually the source of a, a very famous rivalry, which then was created between Chmiel and Museu because um, Museu didn't, or Chmiel didn't work together with Museu to, to, to pull back Armstrong. Anyway, then Chmiel, um, after that, he became Ukrainian for a couple of years. And then, finally, it was in 1998, he became Belgian um, and was a very proud Belgian, rode the 1999 World Championships for Belgium, and he was um, in preparation for that. He'd already, he was very much a citizen of the world at that point, but he'd learned French, he was trying to learn Flemish. He'd learned the, um, the words of the Belgian national anthem in French off by heart. He was the only person in the Belgian team that knew the words of the national anthem. 
Um, and, and then went on, as I said, to win. Well, he won Milan San Remo in 1999, won the Tour of Flanders in 2000, and well, was a, was a, a sort of notorious flahoot, really, a typical Belgian classics rider, a very kind of intimidating individual. I had the, <laughs> I had the, the distinction of, of interviewing him in about 2009. I did about a half-hour interview with him, and he didn't make eye contact with me once um, quite a terrifying character he could be at times. But since, well, he, he was heavily involved with Katusha, um, which I just mentioned, um, the sort of de facto Russian team. And then he became the president of the Moldovan International Olympic Committee, then set up a, a, his own bike company in Moldova. And I heard from our colleague Hugo Korvitz, and the Belgian journalist earlier that, no, he's not going to fight. I did hear some murmurs over the weekend that Shmiel, like Popovich, was sort of toying with the idea of going to fight in Ukraine um, this weekend. But um, he, he's not doing that for now. But Hugo says if they come, he will defend himself. Um, as I said, he's in Moldova. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, what relevance that is to the current situation in Ukraine, I don't, I'm not quite sure. But... Um, he did. He was very much on my mind this weekend as someone who had been Russian, Ukrainian, Moldovan, and Soviet at various points in his life. I think that shows, you know, the complexity of the concept of nationality, doesn't it? And cycling demonstrates that. Uh, you mentioned Igor Makarov. I mean, should point out that Makarov remains a member of the UCI management committee. He's been a member of the UCI's management committee for ten years. Um, so. I suppose, you know, when we're talking about, um, you know, oligarchs and their involvements in sport, um, that requires a mention as well. And this is a tricky subject. Um, a friend of the podcast called Tom Jones has written a, a an interesting blog which had a line which leapt out to me and, and something that, that I've thought applies, which is that sports washing is something that is you know, kind of easy to just skate over or just brush up against the concept of it, um, you know, when it doesn't matter. And then suddenly when it does matter, it really does matter. And, and in this situation, I think, you know, cycling, I watched the UAE tour stage and I, I just thought cycling looked like a helpless pawn in a much bigger game. Yes, Gazprom cyclists um, winning a stage and participating in a bike race uh, the morning after the, the state um, which sponsors the team uh, as declared war on its neighbour. You know, the cycling is really almost insignificant, and yet it's not, because, you know, why do these countries, uh, companies and individuals choose to sponsor sport? Um, they, they do so. It's not sport washing. It's just to kind of normalise and embed, I guess. And so it's very difficult then to unpick um, all of the different threads and strands now, and of course, the discourse is so diverse. I, I completely understand people whose sympathies lie entirely with the riders. And, and a great deal of my sympathy lies with the riders, both Russian and Ukrainian. Um, I mean, we mentioned Mark Padun, Ukrainian rider who won in Spain this weekend. Jonathan Vortis said in a message this week that, you know, the, 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 when this all really escalated, his, you know, his mind was really taken off the race, but he wanted to carry on racing. Um, and and have presumably su summoned up some strength uh, in in a reserve to win um, a, a race that will no doubt mean an awful lot to him. Um, but the, the this sort of idea of 
of whataboutery. You know, we can't have a sort of league table of of the rights and wrongs, can we? It's very difficult to. We did try it once in the podcast, Daniel. Your uh, um, concept of going through the team sponsors and, and weighing up um, you know what they do and what impact they have on the world uh, it is very difficult to have this a league table but it isn't difficult to draw a line and say what is beyond the pale I, I think and I think uh, this situation cycling does need to be stronger on and seeing the press releases come out from the UCI and from the UAE tour and from the Gazprom Rusvelo team um, almost ignoring the significance of this uh, escalation and their, I suppose, small part in it was uh, not particularly edifying for me. Well, listen, Chance, we could probably talk about this because it's a huge subject um, and we could talk about it for a long, long time. And we probably, I'm sure, will be returning to it, but we should probably uh, draw it to a conclusion for just now. Um, And... Well, lots more racing. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a clunky gear change, but we are the cycling podcast and we are um, here to talk about the cycling. And there's a lot coming up um, again. Uh, it's coming thick and fast. So we'll be back next week with more. And as I mentioned, cycling podcast Femina uh, out later this week with the latest news from, well, the, the two races that weekend and the salmon tomorrow. So was, um, that was that's all for this week. Uh, yes. Gear changes, nineteen ninety six Campagnolo Athena. <laughs> was it Athena? What was the worst one? Veloce or um, Athena? I mean, uh, Veloce Athena. I think Veloce was the the cheapest one. Then Athena, then Chorus and, and Record. Mm, yeah. Veloce right? was the one Cruz with Stone was in there. Was a lot of plastic. Even. Croce Downey. Yeah, that's going back to the early 20th century. <laughs> um, the Campag was always quite clunky <laughs> anyway, in a, good, in a good way, in a satisfying way, um, but it was... A satisfying, clunky yeah. way. I, it wasn't, it wasn't for me, noise. I must say, but... Um, yeah. Solid. Were you Shimano rather than Yeah, Campag? I much preferred. I thought, I, that Shimano surprises me. It was much wow. smoother. Surprises me, yeah. going away. No, I, I think... With the I didn't like the thumb presser either. That's the triple somersault contorting himself into the most contrarian position possible. Loves all things Italian except Campagnolo. <laughs> Literally one of the finest things about Italian cycling. I love the concept of Campagnolo, the reality less so. Oh, well, there it goes. Campagnolo as a future sponsor of the Cycle Podcast. <laughs> um, that's all for now. Thank you very much, Lionel. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. You have been listening to The Cycling Podcast. Subscribe to our newsletter at thecyclingpodcast.com to get all the latest news and special offers delivered straight to your inbox. This episode was edited and produced by Tom Wally. Listener.